Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Chris Hochstetler, Army veteran, nonprofit leader, and Dean of Innovation and Creativity for Hastings College. Chris Hochstetler is the Dean of Innovation and Creativity for Hastings College. Hochstetler was born to a single mother in Grand Island, Nebraska, and he and his siblings were homeless for much of his childhood. After extended years in foster care, he graduated from Grand Island Senior High and enlisted in the Army. In a 20-year decorated career, serving in various combat and other assignments around the world, his last assignment was the Acting Battalion Sergeant Major of the Army's only Special Operations Recruiting Battalion, a unit with a critical worldwide mission that he helped to create. Hochstetler's many military decorations include the Legion of Merit, America's seventh highest military award. He holds a BS in Legal Studies with a History minor from the University of Maryland and a Master of Public Administration from Walden University, specializing in nonprofit management and leadership. Hochstetler's career has included being the CEO of the Kineco, a nonprofit center for creative exploration, the director of fund development for the Missionary Society of St. Columban, and the senior VP of resource development for the American Lung Association. He serves on the board of directors for Christian Children's Home Foundation in Council Bluffs, Iowa, Nebraskans for the Arts, Bridges Out of Poverty, the Nebraska Writers Collective, and the Grand Island Children's Museum Steering Committee. He is married with two children. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. It seems appropriate to start at the beginning. So sure. tell us about your childhood. Yeah, well, I guess I'd preface this by saying for a long time, I just didn't talk about my childhood. It was very difficult to talk about. Um, in fact, I think it was probably some years after I was married that I even told my wife the entire story. As my bio said, I was born to a single mother in Grand Island, Nebraska, and that was the the uh, mid-60s. You know, life out there is a little bit different now, but in some ways, not so much. It's still, there's still a lot of rural poverty across Nebraska. I think sometimes we don't, we don't consider that. Um, but back then it was, it was particularly tough. There was not even a homeless shelter in Grand Island, Nebraska. There is now a wonderful place called Hope Harbor. But nonetheless, we were homeless much of my childhood, uh, lived in cars. I remember one car vividly. I think it was a 1952 Chevrolet. It was fun to remember because now, because there were the floorboards in the back seat where we spent most of the time were completely rusted through, so you could definitely see the road and the air came through those rust marks. But we lived in the car for the most part. We would bounce from home to home occasionally and just long enough to, you know, find uh, the, have the landowner figure out that we didn't have enough money for rent and then we'd be evicted and on the street again. Um, my mother loved myself and my two siblings dearly. She just did not have the faculties, the mental capacity. Uh, I, I do believe that in today's world, she probably would have been diagnosed as mentally ill. Uh, but there were absolutely no resources for that. Um, she was a bright lady. And uh, I can often remember some pretty cold winters where we would just hang out at the Edith Abbott Memorial Library in Grand Island, which had actually just been built at that point in time just to stay warm and fortunate for us, you know, we didn't get booted out by the librarians. And 
I think that that was the first place that I really discovered how creativity can really take you away from circumstance and how you can exercise that part of your brain where things just don't seem quite as bad as they really are. I found Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and read it for the first time in that library. It was probably an abridged edition, I'm sure. But I've probably read Treasure Island maybe 30, 40 times since then through the years. Um, and I could be just a little boy running away from pirates or chasing pirates versus uh, a little boy living in a car, you know, without uh, much to eat. So childhood was pretty tough. Um, my sister and I, she was a little bit older, we would go out on missions to scour the streets for pop bottles so that we could turn those in at the local grocery store to try to get maybe a pack of hot dogs or a can of green beans for all four of us to eat. And that would be like the entire day's fare. Uh, eventually the state of Nebraska caught up with my mother because we just weren't consistently in school. And they took us away from her and they placed us in foster care in more western Nebraska, out by Broken Bow. And uh, spent over three years, almost four years, in formative years. I was about 11 years old when we were taken. And uh, until the state Supreme Court of Nebraska determined that you can't take a woman's children because she is homeless, impoverished, or eccentric, as she was diagnosed by court documents. So we were returned. Were you aware during your childhood that your lifestyle was not like other children's lifestyles? And how did that manifest itself if you were aware of that? Well, I, I, kids... Kids can be pretty cruel. You know, there's just no there's just no filter. I think that's part of that. You haven't had time to develop a filter. And a filter is really, I think, developed through life experiences. Well, children don't have those life experiences to be able to to filter those cruelties. So yeah, we were very aware that our life was completely different. You know, we didn't have clothes to wear to school even when we were in school and, and you know, it was pretty brutal at times. Um nonetheless, I think we were all pretty, pretty bright kids. We did okay in school. We didn't do stellar. I probably could have been a much better student had I had a little bit of a, a background uh, or a little bit of backdrop of support to that. Um, we were returned home to my mother when I was uh, getting ready to be a junior in high school. And so the last couple of years or year and a half there with my mother, I worked 40 hours a week and um, did just what I needed to do to get through high school and graduate, which I did, and had a couple of folks who really took me under their wing and said, you know, we believe in you. And, and in fact, that word believe is probably my most favorite word right now. And, and when you walk in my home, currently that's the first word that you see. I've got kind of a, a wooden cutout artistic version of the word believe that that's the first thing you encounter when you walk in my home. And um, I had some high school counselor who said, you know, we believe in you. Uh, you need to get an education. It's the only way out of poverty. And because you're such a kind of middle of the road student, there's not much we can do for you to guarantee success there. Why don't you go to the military? And so I, I actually visited the recruiter when I was still, I think, a junior or senior in high school. And that was all set up for me to go off to the Army before I even graduated. 
are you able to remember and are you able to share what was in your mind and, and what you were feeling, perhaps what your siblings were feeling at that juncture when the state authorities were intervening and uh, you were moving? It was clear you were going to move into the foster care system. Mm-hmm. I remember that night vividly, vividly. It's and, and that's one of the reasons why I guess it was hard to talk about previously. Uh, you know, I was 10 and a half, 11 years old, going on 11 I don't remember precisely the age. I guess I could figure it out. But we had gone to visit my uh, grandmother who lived in a in a retirement village in, in Grand Island that was called Centennial Tower. She lived on the sixth floor of a 13-story building. It was the tallest building in Grand Island, probably the tallest building in surrounding communities. And she had a one-bedroom kind of little studio retirement apartment. And, and occasionally we would go there and sleep on the floor or something of that nature when she would allow it or we would go and my mother would get a $5 bill from her or something. And I don't know if my grandmother had on that particular evening already called social services. Maybe she knew that they were looking for us. Uh, but I remember getting into my grandmother's apartment and, and having her say, Patty, you can't stay here. You shouldn't be here. And and my mom saying, what did you do? What did you do? And she and my grandmother crying, saying, you need to take the back stairs. Don't take the elevator. Take the back stairs out of the building. And I remember going down those stairs. There was this uh, a church behind this um, retirement village, and there was a tall uh, field of, of what I would call switchgrass now, uh, prairie grass. And my mother took us into that field and she laid us down and she said, be quiet, you know, don't say anything, just lay here. And she must have knew that, known that somebody was coming. And then I remember feeling the hand on my collar, you know, and kind of being snatched up out of the grass. And it was the police and put in the back of a police car. And I remember that quick journey to um, a place that was called Children's Village, which was not really but a few blocks from where we were apprehended. The whole way, I can remember kicking the back of the police officer's seat, saying, you know, let us out, let us out. And and I remember him clearly turning back to us, saying, we're all in the same boat here. And I yelled at him, uh, yeah, and it's sinking, you know, <laughs> for a 10 or 11-year-old to, to say something like that. I find that interesting now, you know. But we were put into Children's Village for a few nights before we were transferred to another facility in Hastings. It was called Pooh Corner. You know, once again, those places have evolved. I actually serve on the board of directors for 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 a, a place that's not dissimilar to where we were we were kept uh, for several weeks. Um, but those places were different. It was tough time. You know, I can I can recall, you know, trying to protect my sister from assaults and things like that during those weeks that we were there. And that's a tough thing for an eleven year old kid to do. You know, there's a suggestion of a faith background in your bio and i wonder if you would share a little bit about if you have a faith background and and what that is yeah i I guess i have a little bit of a faith background Stuart. i i mean i'm constantly searching for what all that means um i'm a roman catholic uh currently and i'll probably always be roman catholic i was a, a convert to catholicism and i think that you know, there was a point in my military career where I was deployed. We were in Iraq, and, you know, the, I, I forget who said that there are no uh, atheists in foxholes, but there's some truth to that. And I remember 
during some of my first combat operations of just having those thoughts. In fact, the two books I took with me on my first deployment were the Bible and Treasure Island. Um, and, and it's interesting. The reason I took the Bible was because I, I, I said to myself, well, I better get on this homework now, you know, because <laughs> I may be out of time. Uh, that ended up not being the case, but the homework was good. And, um, yeah, I, I just was, I was always drawn probably to Catholicism because it has a strong uh, thread of, of social justice that runs through it. And, and social justice is something I'm very interested in. That being said, I'm a struggling Catholic at the moment. There's no question about that because I just have a hard time stomaching the whole cover-up with pedophilia. You know, it's it's absurd in my mind. I, I have a, a very difficult time reconciling the whole thing. Foxhole, as it were, with your homework of Treasure Island and the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> you are um, apprehended, as you said, and you go through this experience of, of foster care, and then you emerge and, and graduate. But it seems along the way that you found some mentors that had some strong sense of an eternal potential for you, and wondering how those mentors showed up and how they encouraged you so that you did get to a place where you felt uh, stable and resilient and, and then joined the army. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I do believe that the solution to poverty is somehow encapsulated in those words, I believe in you, and then an opportunity that is provided. Now, not everybody takes that opportunity. I'm the first one to, to suggest that. But I think absent that support structure of a mentor, somebody to say, I believe in you, and it has to be done with sincerity. It can't, be, it can't just be thrown out there. It has to be demonstrated in some fashion. And then the opportunity has to be presented because it's not enough just to say, well, we believe everybody has the capacity to lift themselves up by the bootstraps. Opportunity needs to be presented, and, and then if it's taken we can uh, eradicate poverty. In many cases, opportunity is withheld, I think. And that's a, that's a whole other perhaps discussion of what that looks like. But yeah, the mentors that entered into my life, I'd say the first one probably was my mother, believe it or not, because she, she did the best that she could. You know, she did love us and, and you know, those little excursions to find pop bottles to, to, to buy a can of green beans or hot dog, uh, that was a plan of sorts. And that plan existed because she cared about us. 
the next one probably would be my foster father. I, I had the, the privilege of being in one foster home, although they did try to move, they did separate us as siblings, but I had the privilege of being in one foster home for nearly four years. And my foster father was the first man that I had ever had in my life. You know, I, I dare say I didn't even have a donor because the, the, the definition of a donor is there's some benevolence there, right? There's, there's some type of engagement, some type of interaction. And the, I have no clue, you know, who my father was, not even remotely. But my foster father was a, a, a true cowboy. His name was John Coinson. He's still alive. Uh, and, and he was probably the strongest uh, male figure I've ever known, both physically and emotionally and mentally. I, I saw him at one point in time pick up a, you know, a, a, probably a 300-pound sack of what was called cake that was fed to cattle put it over his shoulder and walk without taking a breath or a, a pause and step a quarter of a mile across the, the ranch yard and never break stride. You know, he played for the Huskers back in the, you know, the early sixties and, um, was a real cowboy. And, and I, that amazed me. It's like, how can someone be so physically strong and mentally strong? He would work 16, 17, 18 hour days. Uh, and, and, that was probably the first time I got exposed to the power of what working hard can, can do for you. And they certainly weren't wealthy people at all. They just they managed a property that belonged to someone else. But they did okay for themselves. And for me, it was, it was amazing. It was like living in a mansion, you know. So two mentors that you were mentioning, the, the first your mother yeah. and, and then your foster father. And then certainly my counselor, when I returned... Um, Man, he, he's passed away. Rod Shada. I'll probably mention two more. Rod Shada was my counselor. He was the one that encouraged me to go to the military. And then, quite honestly, my my social worker named Velma Dobish, who I graduated with high school with her daughter from Grand Island Senior High. And Velma Dobish just always came back with that refrain, I believe in you, I believe in you, I believe in you. And, I mean, she made me believe that. She made me believe that she believed in me and that I was worthy enough to believe in myself to do something. So, yeah, great mentors. It may be that it's only in hindsight that you can see this. Or was there a moment when you can identify that you went from a degree of skepticism or disbelief in this mantra about believing in yourself to the point where you thought, I can believe in myself. There is something there. Yes, I, I think that probably came early in my Army career, I suppose. Uh, you know, I, I rapidly figured out that the Army is not difficult if you just do what you're told and if you work hard. Physically, it's very hard, very difficult, and it is emotionally. I don't want to underscore that, but, you know, 20 years in the Army, I've got a certain amount of experience that I can say it's, it's, it's truly not difficult. Combat is very difficult. Um, but early on in my career, I started, uh, pursuit of what was called soldier of the year. And that would have been back in 1987, probably. And, uh, over a period of time, uh, I went through a series of boards where you would meet with senior non-commissioned officers and officers, and they would quiz you on questions. They would look at your records, your marksmanship records, your fitness records, and they, you had to have an extraordinary knowledge of what it was, what it meant to be a soldier, uh, and the history of the military as well. 
And I, I progressed very, very far in that competition. I, in fact, I was the seventh corps, which is now deactivated, but I was the seventh corps mm-hmm. soldier of the year, which was the best soldier of 30,000, which later got me in a, little, a, a certain amount of difficulty because my head got a little large for, for my hat, uh, being the best of 30,000 soldiers, and that can cause issues too. And I was very young. But I went as high as the Army Soldier of the Year, uh, and I lost that competition to be the best soldier in the entire Army in, a, in 1989. And I lost that uh, competition to a tuba player in the Army Band. And at that point in time, I was, a, I was an armor crewman. I was in a tank. And combat arms is brutal that way. And, and losing to a tuba player was, was not that there's any, I mean, tuba players are great. They're hard, hard guys. You know, they do the same thing that I did, but, but in a different way. But uh, I never lived that down, losing to a tuba player. <laughs> I guess you're um, enfolded in metal in some way. Uh, yeah. One's more musical than the other. Yeah. Right. And uh, tuba, tank, I mean, there's some alliteration here. Maybe it was meant right. to be. Right, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduated from Grand Island Senior High. The opportunity has been presented to you that the military might be a good pathway for you. But let me ask, why did you join the Army? I actually visited the Marine Corps first. And, um, you know, the recruiters were, were a little overbearing for me. I knew I wanted to do something difficult. I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to be challenged physically and mentally. The Army just seemed like a good fit. You know, I couldn't see myself on a, on a ship in the Navy. I didn't want to go to the Air Force because, uh, you know, I wanted to, to do something that was at least perceived to be more difficult on my part. Not that, not that there's any distinction between the branches of service. They are all incredibly honorable and, and difficult places to be at times. Um, but I thought that the Army had the challenge that I was looking for. So tell us a bit more about this career. It's 20 years, so obviously it developed and morphed and transformed over time. Yes, it did. Well, you know, I don't know if anybody actually goes in the military thinking that they're going to retire from the military. I, I think it's, it's something that just happens. And I remember, you know, going into the Army and, 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 and doing well in basic training and, and getting through basic training and getting my first duty assignment and then start embarking on this this road to Soldier of the Year and all of these things. And, and, and my career was really kick-started by people who cared about me. My first duty assignment, I had a, a lieutenant, Lieutenant Mekovic. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to him, but he was a West Point graduate. And I was still pretty young then. I was 18. And he said, you know, there's a way for me to get you into West Point still. And you, you need to go to West Point. And at that point in time, um, you know, you could go to, and I think you still can go to West Point Preparatory School. Uh, they take a certain number of enlisted guys and, and women every year. And they put them through preparatory school. And then if they survive the or, or complete the preparatory school, they'll go to West Point. But you had to commit to, you know, four or five years of, of prep school and, and West Point together. That'd be about five years. And I think there was another eight-year commitment to the service after that. When you're 18 and young, those years look like there's so many. And I just couldn't do it. I said, no, I'm just going to stay enlisted. I ended up spending probably more time than I would have had had I gone the route of going to West Point. Um, and later in life, I found out in, in my army career, I found out that I, I personally believe that I was a very good non-commissioned officer and that's a good role for me. Uh, I am an, what I consider to be an executor 
and it was nice to be the sergeant major at the end of my career next to the colonel and have the colonel have a vision of what the unit should be doing and come to me and say, you know, Sergeant Major, I need you to execute this. Can you buy off on it and, and have me uh, give him or her my, my feedback and, and then ultimately have be a part of that decision but be responsible for that execution of that vision. And so I, I was always pretty good at that. And, uh, yeah, that it was not that of an illustrious career, to be honest. Uh, you know, I survived. I have many friends who didn't come back from combat. Uh, and um, I'll never forget those guys. Uh, I was honored to serve in special operations um, about halfway through my career. I finished my career at Fort Bragg with a very specialized unit. Um, when September 11th happened, a colonel and, and, and I we were approached because of our past experiences and, and, and we were asked to create a plan to double the size of special special forces. At that time, there was about 3,700 special forces operators in the arsenal when September 11th happened. And we had very few Arabic speakers, very few Farsi or Pashto speakers, virtually none. So we, in, in, in a sense, we were caught off guard that way. And that was the time when intelligence agencies weren't really talking to one another either. There was big issues there. But the colonel and I were able to devise a plan that within two short years following September 11th, we were able to double the size of special forces, up to about 7,000 operators. And that was to promulgate what was then called the, the Global War on Terrorism. How did you manage to do that in a way that didn't sacrifice the integrity and the excellence that is associated with uh, members of special operations units? Yeah, that's a great question, Stuart, because special operations soldiers cannot be mass-produced. There's no question. Uh, you have to be someone who is very physically fit but mentally fit, and you have to be someone who, who, who has a great capacity to innovate and to create. And that's what it boils down to. You have to be very entrepreneurial. So what we did was recognizing that the selection rate through special forces assessment selection was only about 25% at any given cycle and then you would also lose soldiers in what was called the qualification course so the long and the short of it was you know there's maybe anywhere from 10 to 12 percent of at that point in time only men were allowed in special forces uh would actually complete the training and become a green beret and become operational uh in the field we identified kind of the choke points to that the first thing that we did was we said well you know we're fighting this war on terrorism right now we have soldiers who are getting combat experience. Can we go to them? Can we go to the combat zone and can we find these soldiers? Can we work with them and pull them out of the combat zone and get them to special forces training? Is that a risk that's worth taking? Not only doing it and going out in the combat zone and getting those soldiers, but also is it is it a huge risk taking those soldiers from their units during combat operations and saying, no, it's more it's critical right now that you become a special forces operator versus stay in the unit that you're in right now. So we created a process for that to happen. We also created a, a mechanism to fill the gap regarding physical fitness and the land navigation and mental toughness that it would take to get these guys through assessment selection. In a sense, we got them prepared to go to assessment and selection as good as we could. And that increased the selection rate dramatically. We were sending the right guys, and they were mentally and physically prepared for it. You mentioned that you yourself started 
in uh, the armored division. You mentioned mm-hmm. tanks. Uh, before even joining, you knew that you, you didn't particularly like the attitude of the marine recruiters. Mm-hmm. And so here you are as a moving through, um, and you didn't want to go to West Point because of the reasons you mentioned. So you're moving through your career um, and moving up into a sort of non-commissioned role, which suited you. But that's a little more regular in terms of the army. But you yourself transitioned into uh, a more of a special operations role. That's right. So how was your transition? What what made you decide that you wanted to make that shift from, from one aspect of the service to the other? Uh, I think that part of that is just the desire to be constantly challenged. I'm a very curious person. In fact, that's my, that's kind of my mantra of where I've been. And, and certainly I, you know, I hope that as the Dean of Innovation and Creativity at Hastings College, that the one thing that I can probably impact in this position is it. And I hope that this is the way is a constant nagging curiosity of what could be. And I think that's what led me down the path that I that I went in my army career is is you know just how far can you go how far can you push I'm always into physical challenges I like physical challenges uh, I'm not the fastest guy you know in the in the room perhaps you know I, I'm not the brightest guy in the room never have been but I like to be challenged by that. And I like to push to see just where that can lead. And I, and I think that uh, special operations unit, units across the board are filled with like-minded people who just want to push and see, see what's next. And that constant curiosity, constant change, it's uncomfortable. It's terribly uncomfortable. But, you know, creativity and, and innovation, it's incredibly uncomfortable. If you're not uncomfortable, you're probably not innovating. You're probably not being creative. Sleep lost count of how many honors and medals were in your bio, and I, I just stripped that back a little bit mm-hmm. because your service uh, is extensive. But you've been decorated with uh, honors, medals, commendations maybe 17 times, which speaks to a, a, a really excellent service career. Before we move on to sort of some of these new civilian roles around creativity. Is there anything that stands out to you from with with and I'm sure with all humility because that's kind of the guy you are, but with with that humility acknowledged, is there anything that particularly stands out from y- your service that 
perhaps uh, um, others would regard as um, a truly fine moment. Uh, wow, I, I mean it's a it's a it's a pressing question because I, I don't think that any soldier or any service member, you know, considers those those awards that you that you are honored with as as something that you're pursuing. You know, you just you just don't you know look at it that way. And in in many cases, you're awarded something for. Uh, something that you feel like you didn't deserve or, or that you were just in the right place at the right time or you just did the right thing, you know, and it got observed. And there's countless, probably thousands of those opportunities and actions that go unrewarded because, A, either your leaders didn't have the, the foresight to submit and do the paperwork for it or, or nobody saw you doing something extraordinary. Uh, I have to say the Legion of Merit was complete and utter surprise to me it's an award that's usually reserved for officers frankly not non-commissioned officers if if non-commissioned officers probably at the highest level of the army maybe sergeant major of the army so when i was uh honored with the legion of merit it was a shock to me i was pretty much reduced to tears which also is you know a, a, a lot of folks when they look at soldiers and, and, and especially on the special operations side, they'll, they'll say, you know, uh, you know, well, those guys don't, don't cry or they don't, you know, they don't hurt or they don't, you know, soldiers don't do that, but that's, that's false. You know, there's many tears that are shed with each other, uh, over many different things and it all hurts. Uh, but getting that Legion of Merit, uh, and being honored with that, you know, doesn't do much for me now, say for maybe this interview, but that meant, meant that meant the world to me because I, I honestly I feel like during my whole career I, I stood on the shoulders of giants. I was recognized in that moment, and it, it meant so much to me. You know, guys like Matthew Slustiller, who was the first uh, soldier killed in Pakistan before we in in 2010. Uh, he was one of my soldiers, you know, and killed after I retired from the army. But guys like Matthew are are the reasons why I have the Legion of Merit now. And every time I look at that, I think of guys like Matthew. I think of his wife and his daughter Hannah, who who you know Hannah doesn't have a, a father anymore, uh, and she'll grow up without a father. She was three when he died. So I think about those situations, and and I I guess that's that's why that particular award means so much to me. You talked about this personal trait of nagging curiosity. And so did you leave with the intention of deliberately finding roles that spoke to that nagging curiosity, deliberately seeking realms of creativity? Mm. And so your bio speaks about the Kaneko mm -hmm. and obviously this current role. So what did you intend when you left and how have you transitioned from there to these creative roles? Right. Well, I, I, that nagging curiosity was always there as well as a fear after 20 years. I mean, you go in the Army when you're 17, you know, and, and 20 years later you come out at 37, and the only thing you really know through those formative years is the Army. And by the way, I think that that's a challenge for us now that we don't even realize. You know, we've got a whole generation of folks that went from 17 to 37 and are retiring now, and they probably have 10, 11, 12 combat tours under their belt the last 18 years of fighting but ha has produced more amputees than any other any other war we've ever fought in 
That's because we're able to save them on the battlefield. They would have died in any other conflict. So just a, a little divergent there just to say that there's this there's a massive bubble of what that looks like, I think, coming down the road for us that we need to we need to be prepared to deal with. But no, I had that nagging curiosity, but also I, I had this desire to give back. I've always been very, very grateful for the fact that my family has never known poverty. My kids are so far removed from poverty. One generation, now I'm not a wealthy person, but they have always, you know, they've always been provided anything that they wanted. I owe the taxpayers that. You know, they, they took good care of me in the Army. They took good care of my family while I was in the Army. And I did not pay a single dime for my undergraduate or my graduate degree. So when I was in getting ready to graduate from my undergraduate um, school, college of, of uh, you mentioned legal studies and, and history as well, I had visions that maybe I'll go to law school. And I had a professor that took me under his belt and said, you know, I think you want to go to law school for the wrong reasons. I said, you know, you, you want to help people. He said, I've seen plenty of, not that lawyers don't help people, but I've seen plenty of frustrated lawyers who thought that they were going to change the world and, and that's not the way it, it panned out. He said, why don't you consider maybe looking at nonprofits? Could you get a, a graduate degree to help you with nonprofits and kind of go out and do the, the giving back in the world that you I feel you strongly believe in. And, and I did that, and that's why I pursued public administration. At that point in time, there were few programs that you could actually get a degree in nonprofit management. Now I think you can. Then it was just a, a public administration degree with a specialization. So that's the route that I went. And initially, I was blessed to be hired on immediately out of the Army in a very senior position with the American Lung Association. That's kind of where I cut my teeth for five years in nonprofit management at a senior executive level, as well as learning what it is to, to fundraise. You know, I was responsible for fundraising across the nine state region. And I, I got to tell you that a lot of times combat is probably an easier route than fundraising, you know, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of facetiousness there. But but fundraising is a tough gig. So I did that. I was pretty good at it. Uh, it did get to a point where, uh, you know, my wife and family and I decided that it's time to be home. You know, the entire time that I had been married, I had been gone, whether that was, you know, in the Army, traveling the world, uh, doing what I needed to do, or with the American Lung Association across nine states, or with the Missionary Society of St. Columban, which was, uh, you know, global mission as well. There was just an enormous amount of travel. You know, the world is about relationships, and I happened to know someone who, who alerted me to the fact that uh, the Kaneko was an open position, and they were looking for someone who had skills in, in being a CEO or executive director at a senior level, but also in fundraising, because that's a big part of what any executive director needs to do is fundraising. I was fortunate enough to interview and get the position. Um yeah, it's it's a creative place, and and I did get that question a lot when I was at the Kaneko, and and I welcome that question because I've got an answer that I've developed over time. But of what the heck are you doing here with a background as a as a soldier? How can, how are you the CEO of the Kaneko? And so I, I've welcomed that question, and and I and my time at Kaneko was was incredible. It's a, an incredibly creative place. It really allows you to dive in deep and just ask questions and be curious. It's a perfect place for me.
Do you have a philosophy about creativity and innovation, uh, maybe a guiding philosophy that you try to share in the roles that you have? Oh, I certainly do. Uh, I think that creativity is that heart of, of what makes us human. I think it's the center of what makes us human beings. I look at other creatures on the planet. I find it also inter- interesting that that etymology from the Latin, I think it's credo maybe, uh, of creator, creating, creativity, create. It's all, it's all tied together in, in a very spiritual sense, I think. And so my philosophy really revolves around this, that exploration of creativity is what activates us as human beings. Absent that exploration, there's no activation as a human being. We, we, can't, we can't get to the root of what makes us human. And so when we uh, encounter a work of art or we go to a Kaneko or a Joslin or, or, you know, a Mona or a MoMA and we encounter a great work of art and we say, oh, I can't do that. I'm not creative. The first thing that happens is we are discounting that part of us that makes us human because it's not about a, an ability to, to make a painting or a sculpture and have it put on gallery display somewhere. It's the exploration of that creativity that activates that human that humanity in us, develops empathy, promotes innovation, constant curiosity of, well, what else could I do? And that pursuit of creativity is critical to that. I also believe that that is what brings us closer to the creator, because I think that is why we were placed on this planet, is to create things. No other species on the planet creates things for a higher purpose other than mankind. Think about that. I mean, it, it, other species, they create things for survival or for instinct. But look at the Sistine Chapel. Look at this space that we're sitting in with this studio. Look at all this equipment that's being utilized. We have to maintain a sense of wonder about all these things. When we lose our sense of wonder about all of these things, even these four walls that we're in, we could be sitting in a field right now. But same impact, we could still have the conversation in a field somewhere. But because someone had the wherewithal to ask why and how and have that curiosity. We have this great soundboard, these computer systems, these four walls, this lighting, this chair that we sit in, the clothes that we wear, the glasses that are on our face. All of those things came from someone who had constant curiosity. Is it that spirit of innovation and the desire to stimulate, catalyze, and yield something unexpected that is behind the new role that you fulfill at Hastings College. It is. I'm just incredibly grateful to be at Hastings College. It's an extraordinary place. It has a long 138-year history in the state of being a place that really um, pursues the fine arts, but also that 
thread of curiosity and caring, you know, creating caring and curious graduates, global citizens, if you will. And I think that's about part of our mission statement. I, I, I like that. I like that idea. Uh, when I was getting ready to, well, when I left Coneco, I, I felt like it was time for me to move on. I actually didn't have a position to go to. Uh, we had started uh, some programming um, a year earlier with Hastings College that we called Open Space, which was a, a summer arts immersion program for, for juniors in high school getting ready to be seniors. We have a wonderful new visual arts center that was built in 2016, and it has the largest glass-blowing studio of any private college or university in the country. It's an extraordinary facility, and the faculty are, are incredible. The world needs to hear about that. So, so as we did this open space program, the thought occurred to me, how can we at Coneco help get gifted art students here to create and to explore creativity in this wonderful setting? And then I'll take it a step further. My passion is to keep those artists here in Nebraska functioning, providing to our, our vibrancy, providing to our economy giving back to all of us, immersing all of us in creativity as well, just sucking us into this big creative vortex that will launch Nebraska into the stratosphere. And, and that's that's my hope. That's my dream. Hastings College is a great place for me to contribute to that. It's a pretty astonishing art, Chris, because in some ways here you are. Hastings is 20, 30 miles away from Grand Island. <laughs> and you have traveled the world in... Uh, a citizen, as in some ways a diplomat, and in some occasions as a warrior as well. And here you are back uh, thinking about innovation, creativity. What have you learned about yourself? Wow, that's a that's an amazing question. I actually wrote a poem. I think about this question. I'm I'm fond of writing, and and I I, I tinker around with visual art as well. But I wrote a poem called Exit Three Twelve which is the exit that you take to either go to Grand Island or turn south and go to Hastings. For many, many years, if not decades, when I left Grand Island, Nebraska, as ostensibly a homeless kid still who was just going off to the Army, I wanted all of that in my rearview mirror. And it really was in my rearview mirror for decades. And then I found myself back at Hastings College and... You know, I have an apartment in Hastings and I have a home here still. I, I believe that that's a, perhaps another topic, but we're citizens of Nebraska. We're citizens of the country. We're citizens of the world. So I, I don't look at it, view it compartmentalized necessarily into communities. I'm, I'm a part of Omaha. I'm a part of Council Bluffs. I'm a part of Hastings, Grand Island, you name it, Heidelberg, Germany, wherever, Fallujah. Um, but driving back and forth and taking that exit for you know, some months, I just couldn't head north and head to Grand Island. I just couldn't do it. I was having a great, great time in Hastings, but I just couldn't reconcile going back to Grand Island. And I, I linked with the executive director of the uh, Community Foundation there, Melissa Delate, and she reintroduced me. She gave me a tour of Grand Island, my hometown, and it was difficult for me. She took me to Hope Harbor, the homeless shelter there, gave me a tour of Hope Harbor. Very difficult for me. It didn't exist when I was there. She took me to the library. She didn't know any of this story, by the way. And I started to go back to Grand Island with a little bit more frequency. Uh, Hope Harbor actually reached out to me and, and asked me to be their keynote speaker at this past this past uh, November. They did their annual fundraiser and asked me to be their keynote. 
which was somewhat of a cathartic moment. But in the lead up to that, I recall sitting in uh, what's now a Casey's gas station, which used to be a holiday gas station that's fairly close to the library. And behind this gas station is an alleyway where my sister and I used to go hunt for pop bottles to walk three blocks down further to take them to the grocery store so we could eat. And here I am sitting in this gas station after filling up in my fairly new car, pulled over to take a conference call. And I had a breakdown in that very moment that I had to just get off the call and and sit there in the car and kind of deal with. I, I can't reconcile sitting here taking a conference call when a few short decades ago, you know, I was behind that gas station looking for something to eat ostensibly. So I wrote a poem about Exit 312 and how I tried to avoid it for so many decades. And now, you know, it means something else to me. It's, 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 it's really become kind of a place of peace uh, for me. And uh, I'm very excited to be a part of many different projects that are going on in Hastings and in Grand Island uh, that are very innovative and that I hope will be a way of me kind of continuing to heal and continuing to give back. Uh, if you'd like to read that poem by Chris Hochstetler, Exit 312, then we will have a copy of that on our Facebook page, which is at Lives Radio Show. My guest today has been Chris Hochstetler, Army veteran, nonprofit leader, and Dean of Innovation and Creativity for Hastings College. Chris, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate you. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.